Amen. Good morning, ECC. I hope you are well. It's good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to be spending some time today. A couple of years back, uh, my wife, Sheila, and I decided we were going to try our hand at farming. Now, none of us are farmers. We don't really know what to do. But um, through relatives, we organized for some people to basically tell us what to plant, where to plant it, um, and how to plant it. So we decided we are going to plant potatoes, and we decided we are going to devote two days to basically go to this farm that we had leased and dig ourselves using our own hands. There was no machinery. We had to use a handheld machinery to dig and plant and dig and plant. And the plan was invest in farming and hopefully we would get a return from our investment because it was a part of the country where whatever you drop in the ground will grow. It's extremely fertile. So we go, we worked hard, put in, uh, put in the work, put in the potatoes, left with blisters on our hands and feet, but we're like, yeah, investment. Um, and as we were leaving, my wife, more than me, had an uneasy feeling about the broker. She was like, I don't know if you can trust this guy. I'm like, ah, it'll be fine. So we go back home and he says, you know, you can check up on, on this every week. After a few months, then, you know, you'll get your, your harvest and you can get uh, back your money on the investment plus some. Like, great. So we, we check up, you know, regularly, regularly. Time for the harvest comes and we try finding the guy and he's not picking his phone. And I am going, oh, maybe it's a network issue. And my wife is going, uh-huh. <laughs> we try again. He's not picking up his phone. Basically, our broker friend had disappeared with our investment. And the, the money had fizzled out. The, the crops were permanently cold, never really growing. Turns out he just ate the money. Right? Now, it was frustrating because it's not like we had a lot of money. And the little we had, we used in this venture in the hopes that we would get a return from it, only to be swindled and conned out of our investment. In the story we are about to read, what I hope you see is what happens when you and I trust in wealth instead of trusting in God. In many ways in that story, we would never have said we trust in wealth. We're like, no, 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 we trust in God. We're just hoping that the wealth sustains us, not God. Right? And in this story, what I hope to leave us with from Luke chapter 16, verse 1 to 13 is that we can have the calm assurance of trusting our wealth with God instead of trusting our wealth as God. I'll say that again. I hope to leave us with the calm assurance that we can use and trust our wealth with God, use it for God, instead of trusting our wealth as though it were God to give us things that only God can give us. Luke chapter 16, I'll read from verse 1 to 13, at the end of which I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, write it on our hearts, we pray. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Luke chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, 
What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, he called them, he called, sorry, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal, into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, O oh God, that you'd help me step out of your way. Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus has been telling a set of stories that we went through in the last couple of weeks. He's been talking to the Pharisees, really, that was his main audience. And he had the story of the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and lastly, the lost son or the lost sons. And he has been saying these stories to show how the outcast is accepted and the in-group person, i.e. the Pharisee, is actually rejected. And he's been telling these stories to get the Pharisee's attention. Now, he changes the focus of his main audience. Look there with me in chapter 16, verse 1. And he said to the disciples. His main audience was now the disciples. And this parable is mainly targeted at them. It's the story of a dishonest steward or a dishonest manager. And the manager here is actually the main character. The story is he has been wasting his master's possessions, his master's wealth. And that idea of wasting, same thing that happened with the prodigal son, squandering, he's being prodigal about someone else's property. 
his father's, rather not his father, his master's property, just like the prodigal son was squandering his father's property. And so the master hears about this, clearly he believes what he has heard, and tells this manager, you're done, you're out. This manager <laughs> realizes, uh, I'm in trouble, I'm about to get fired. Now, I, I can't dig, I'm not strong enough to do that. I am too ashamed to beg, so what do I do? So he basically hatches a plan. Here's what, here's what the process has been like. The, the manager has been told, you are a mess. And he decides, here's the plan. I'm going to cook the books so that I can get into the good books of those who owe my master money. So listen to the story. How much do you owe? He's told, 100 measures. Take it down to 80. How much do you owe? 100 measures. Take it down to 50. Now, you might wonder why, why if they both owed 100, why is one being told take it down to 50 measures of oil and the other being told take it down to 80 measures of wheat? That's not the main point. The main point is both these people who owed the master money are being forgiven of a lot of money, right? The, the, the first guy owed about 3,200 liters of oil. The second guy owed almost 40,000, if you put it in, liters of wheat, and these rates have been taken down. So it's almost as though they were supposed to each pay 500,000 dirham. And they're being told, no, no, pay 300,000 dirham. Or pay 200,000 dirham. What that does for me as the person who owes the money, I'm like, this is great. Thank you for hooking me up. I get to save some money. At that point in the story, you would think when the master came back, he would be displeased, right? If I was waiting for 500,000 dirham to come back to me, and only 200,000 dirham came back to me, and I know that it is your fault, I'll be like, I'll see you outside, right? I'm not actually that violent, I'm just giving it as an example. But listen to what the master does in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager. He commended him? Now, at, at that point, it can be confusing because we're like, wait... Are you commending him for being dishonest? Because in the story, manager, you are a screw-up. Therefore, your time is up. Your time is up. What does he decide to do? Ah, I will get some people to get a hookup. Remember, the manager's problem is he needs a roof over his head and food in his belly. He can't work, he can't beg, and his whole point is he wants to enter people's houses. He wants to enter their earthly dwellings. Don't forget that. And when the manager comes back, his reaction is, huh, you clever devil you he's not commending him for being dishonest he's commending him for being clever he's not commending him for being corrupt he's commending him for being clever he's like you know what if i was in your shoes i might have been impressed by doing that that's actually impressive and to be fair that is actually impressive now this guy has a roof over his head food in his belly because he has been able to cook the books and get into the good books of the people who owed money. Then Jesus speaks and tells us what's really going on here. Verse 9. And I tell you... Rather, let me, let's start from verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Then Jesus interrupts that and says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world literally means the sons of this age. The sons of 
those who are not in Christ, as opposed to the sons of light, who are the sons of those who are in Christ. They are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So let's step back and figure out, okay, what is going on here, right? Remember what the dishonest manager did? He used his wit and his wealth to make friends for himself so that when life would get rough, he could enter their earthly dwellings. He could enter their houses. Use your money, use your wealth, use your wit in order to get friends who will welcome you into their earthly dwellings. Jesus is saying, use your money, you the sons of light, not like the dishonest manager who is a son of the world, a son of this age, you use your wealth and your wit to make friends who will welcome you into the eternal dwellings. This guy is using his wealth to help him get into earthly dwellings. Jesus is saying, you, use your wealth, use your wit to make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. The million dollar question is how, right? How do you use money to make friends who will welcome you into heaven? Because that's what that phrase, eternal dwellings, means. The answer, by using our money to support church-based, gospel-centered missions around the world. In other words, we use our money to support those who will transport the gospel. Those people will become our eternal friends in Christ. And should they precede us to heaven and we die, Guess who the first people we'll see when we open our eyes after dying will be? The very people who became our friends through the work of the gospel. Do you understand it? Okay, this means yes. This means no. Are we together? Yeah, yeah okay, the middle section is nodding. I don't, and I, I'll be praying for you guys. Here's the idea. Jesus is saying you're going to use wealth anyway. The sons of this world, the sons of this age can't see beyond this world. This is all they have. And they use their wealth to make worldly friends so that they may have worldly homes. This earth, this age, this world is all they know. You have wealth. How are you going to use your wealth? Use your wealth to support gospel work so that when people get saved and die before you and go home, they will welcome you home. You know what that means? That means someday you will die and you'll get to heaven and you'll hear a Tagalog speaker from Manila say, hey, you are my friend. And you'll be like, hey, I don't know who you are. <laughs> and he will tell you, you are the guys who supported Alan Manzaneras in the Philippines. He came and witnessed to me while I was completely far from God. I came to Christ and I preceded you here. Welcome home. You will die someday and you'll hear a Telugu speaker tell you, Vandanalu, brother. And you'll be like, I don't know what you just said, but it sounds nice. Who are you? And he will tell you, I'm the guy who got saved under the ministry of Shampasula, who you spent your church's money funding so that he may tell me the gospel. Someday, the Amharic will do that because as a church, we supported Nigusi. Do you see? Someday the Lebanese will rejoice because we supported Anwar. Do you see? You'll open up heaven and you'll have a truckload of friends 
who will welcome you into your eternal dwelling because of how you used your money, your wealth, your wit. Charles Spurgeon said every Christian is either, in concerning missions, is either a goer or a sender. Jesus is inviting us to be a sender that we may get friends who welcome us into these eternal dwellings. That's the whole point of how we should use wealth, how we should use what the, the literal translation of the word there is, mammon. So let me ask you, what are you using your money, your wealth, your wit, and your possessions for? Let me rephrase it. What are your receipts revealing about what you revere? In the office, there's a running joke. When, when Ben Zamora will say, hey, let's go for lunch, I'm always like, yeah, let's go for lunch, and I always ask the same question. Is there meat? Because I just, I don't understand vegetable lunches. I just, I, I don't, that makes no sense to me. So I want to go somewhere where there's meat. And my receipts will show you that I value meat. What are your receipts telling me? More importantly, what are they telling you? Because our money quite literally follows our heart. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. Just a few chapters preceding this, from verse 33, he said, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In my earlier story, our treasure could have been squandered even if the guy did everything right. But when you and I use our wealth to help people get to heaven, that investment is eternal and it is never dying. So what are your receipts revealing about what you revere? Are they saying you're spending most of your time on savings and investments? I'd be careful. Because savings and investments are very respectable idols. They're not bad. No idol ever is. An idol is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's a good thing that we elevate to God's status. It is a good thing that we rely on, trust in, have to have in order to have fulfillment. And if my receipts and your receipts are saying we spend most of our money on ourselves and spiritualize the language, then really the idol factory that is our hearts is saying we are using our money for purposes that God didn't intend to give us that money for to begin with. And Jesus says, use your wealth in this way. And he calls it unrighteous wealth. Now, that, that phrase unrighteous wealth doesn't mean in and of itself it's unrighteous. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing. The problem is not that money by its nature is bad. It's how the money is used that makes it bad or good. Jesus is saying, don't use your money like the way the sons of the world do. Use your money the way the sons of light do. This, by the way, ECC, is why we show you the budget. <laughs> so that we may help you invest in this. So that we may help you invest in eternal treasure. So that someday the investment you're making in pushing the gospel out of Abu Dhabi, through Abu Dhabi to the ends of the earth, may gain you, friends, who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. And that money will outlive you. That work will outlive you and I. This is why we spend money on coffee with our unbelieving friends 
And sometimes that coffee is expensive. But what we are trying to do is build a redemptive relationship so that we can share the gospel with them. And who knows? They may be the friend who welcomes us into our eternal dwelling. This is why we encourage you to go to the bookshop and buy kids' Bibles and kids' books. They are expensive. Why? So that we teach children the gospel in ways they can understand. And God forbid, should our child precede us to heaven, they will welcome us to heaven. This is why we encourage that we use our money on youth camps and children's ministries so that they may come to know Jesus Christ and be part of that eternal dwelling. This is why we spend our money doing things like taking care of each other. We spend our money helping people like Sally Francisco get back home so that when she precedes us, she will say, these were my friends, even if you never had a conversation with her. Do you see? This is how the sons of light use their wealth for eternal purposes. This is why the sons of light take care of their families. Because First Timothy says, someone who does not take care of their family is worse than an unbeliever and has denied their faith. If they are unwilling to take care of their children, not if they are unable, if they are unwilling to take care of their family, that's acting like the sons of this world and this age. The sons of light use their money for the priorities God has given them. This is the point Jesus is making. And so I ask again, what are our receipts revealing about what we revere? That we trust in wealth or that we trust God with our wealth? Basically, Jesus says this story and says, you think that manager is shrewd? Let me tell you what shrewd is. Shrewd is using money this way. Because you see, this manager can use his money to make a lifelong investment, which lasts, what, 80 years, 90 if he's lucky. You and I can make investments that last 80 trillion years. And then when it's done, another 80 trillion years. And the reward we get on that will never run out. That's shrewd. Using money in those ways. This is how the sons of light use their money. And I, I think, by the way, that's why heaven is described as having streets of what? Streets of gold, right? The thing that people are fighting for on earth, money, wealth, gold, the thing we are all fighting for, that's what we walk on in heaven. You know what I've never seen? I've never seen people take a selfie with the tarmac. Like, guys, check out the sidewalk. This is me and the tarmac. Because it's tarmac. We walk on the thing. Yeah, the ceiling of earth is the floor of heaven. It's just money. It's just money. It's just gold. But that gold invested in eternal souls, ah, that, that has eternal return. And then after that, Jesus gives a maxim. A maxim is a truth concerning conduct. Here's what it says in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And what he's trying to say is, watch someone's small behaviors. They are indicative of something. They might not be definitive. Like if you're, if you're fumbling with something in your life, that doesn't mean you're now a complete write-off. No. But he's saying, if you see people who are faithful in a little, it's indicative that they'll probably be faithful in a lot. If you see them dishonest in a little, it's probably indicative that they'll be dishonest in a lot. I have a friend, he just turned 14 years old, and uh, we really don't like playing games with him. Because every game you play with him, he cheats. Every game. 
chess, cards, video games. He cheats in every game. So we're just like, ah, we're not playing with you. Right? Now, my worry is this game cheating behavior might translate into your exams and into your finances and into your employment, right? The point Jesus is making here, the principle he's making here that he will eventually make practical is, look, small things like honesty will eventually translate into reliability with bigger things. Small things like kindness in the smallest ways will eventually translate to kindness in big ways and people having high regard for you. Small things like being calm under pressure will eventually translate in you being calm under bigger pressure when you have to lead something bigger. Do you see? And he moves it out of just the realm of a principle and makes it practical. And what he says there is, look, faithful people are faithful people. And unfaithful people are unfaithful people, regardless of how much they have. His point is, bad stewards are bad stewards, and good stewards are good stewards, regardless of how much you give them. The problem is not the money, the problem is the manager. So when people are saying to him, for example, oh, if I had more, I'd give more, he's like, no, you'd be just as stingy. Because the money follows your heart. It follows my heart. The issue is not how much we have. The issue is who we are. That always translates into our behavior, especially in this case, with money. So the sons of this world will not be honest with money. That's expected of them. Jesus points to his disciples is A, as sons of light, we are to be honest. We are to prioritize our money in this way and be faithful as managers. And then comes verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? I'll add verse 12 in that. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Here's the idea. Unrighteous wealth, mammon, is earthly possessions, earthly wealth. True riches is spiritual stewardship. And Jesus is saying this statement and targeting the Pharisees. His main audience was his disciples, but at this point, he targets the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees wanted to be those who are in charge of spiritual leadership. They wanted to be the ones who are in charge of the spiritual state of Judea. They wanted to be the curators and custodians of Judaism. And Jesus says, wait, you guys are not even good with natural money, yet you expect to be given spiritual wealth? Verse 14, check out verse 14, the assessment that God has of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who are lovers of money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of? So these guys loved their money. See, here's the deal with the Pharisees. They believed that wealth, money, blessing is a, rather money and possessions and wealth is a blessing from God. And they were right. That is true. Wealth, money, that is a blessing from God. That is true. Where they were wrong is they believed that therefore the most blessed person is the richest person. And other people do not matter. They are irrelevant. Throughout the book of Luke, throughout the Gospels, you will see the Pharisees treat people like absolute rubbish. Because we are the rich ones, you are not rich, we are the blessed ones, you are not blessed. Therefore, we can do with you whatever we want. 
The second mistake they made is they thought just because someone is rich and has been blessed by God, therefore they can do with their wealth whatever they please. And in those two verses, Jesus shuts that down. Firstly, Pharisees, you will not be entrusted with spiritual wealth because you can't even handle unrighteous mammon. You can't handle natural wealth. But secondly, to these Pharisees, not only will you not be entrusted with ultimate wealth, that wealth isn't yours to begin with. The Pharisees were like the original prosperity gospel preachers. Rich guys who liked being adored, considered themselves blessed, and if you got into their sphere, they'd help you maybe get blessed as well. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've missed it, you've missed it. That wealth, that money, those possessions are not yours to begin with. And if you doubt whether your money or my money belongs to us, go to a funeral. Better yet, think of your own funeral. Because the most reliable statistic in the world is that one out of every one human beings die. <laughs> At your funeral, you will not be able to take your house with you. You will not be able to take your car with you. You will not be able to take your investment and your savings account with you. It never belonged to you to begin with. John D. Rockefeller was the richest man in American history. He was America's first billionaire. And to date, by comparison, he is by far the richest man in America. He passed away. And um, after, he passed, after he passed away, and a, a reporter asked him, hey, so um, how much of the wealth did John D. Rockefeller leave behind? And the lawyer thought for a second and said, all of it. He didn't take the rest anywhere. It all stayed. And the point Jesus is making is, all of that money, all of that wealth, doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So it follows that if the money belongs to God, it should be used as he intends for his money to be used. That's what the steward had missed. The steward was wasting the money away like it was his. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not ours. It is to be used in line with how God has designed it to be used. So let me press in on us again. What are our receipts revealing about what we revere? What are our receipts revealing about where our heart is? What we are trusting? You know, that, that interesting word, mammon for unrighteous wealth, it matters. Because in the next verse, Jesus says this, in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. The idea when he says hate and love, it's not so much emotional as it's a Hebrew way of comparing. You will either despise one and be devoted to the other or the other way around. And when Jesus says you cannot serve or be a slave to both, you have to choose one, either God or mammon. That word mammon, it's a Semitic word, comes from Hebrew aman or Arabic amin. In Kiswahili amin, it means to believe or to trust. Jesus is saying you're either going to trust wealth or you're going to trust God. You can't trust both. You can't prioritize at the same level. I can't prioritize both at the same level. I can't serve those two masters. None of us can. 
in my country, Kenya, one of the things that frustrates me when I drive is you'll, you'll be driving and you'll come to a traffic light. And there'll be a traffic light, but there'll also be a policeman. And the traffic light will go green, but the policeman will put his hand up and say stop. It's very annoying, because in my head I'm thinking, why is my tax paying for both of you? I thought we got this thing so that we don't have to have you. But the second thing is, who do I listen to? Because <laughs> if I go past the policeman, he'll arrest me. But the law says I'm supposed to follow the traffic lights. Who do I listen to? It's the same thing. If God and money have the same weight in my ears, I'm torn apart. I have to pick one. Something has to come under the other thing. Right? In the same way, money has to come under God. If it came from him, then it is for him to decide how it is used, priorities he has already provided in this book. Once that happens, we are fine. But if we are trying to serve both, we will suffer for a world of hurt. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. And it wasn't working. And maybe you're here and you're that Pharisee. Let me introduce you to yourself. You're actually a really good guy. You're actually a really good girl. You come to church. You read your Bible. You pray. You even give. You're faithful to your wife or your husband. You raise your children well. You work hard. You don't steal from your employer. You're the kind of citizen everyone wants. The only problem is you don't know Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior. Your life is telling me you somehow think that your goodness and your wealth is going to help you have eternal dwellings. Newsflash. The best your life can get you is earthly dwellings. And it will leave you eternally homeless in a hot, torturous place called hell. But God was so rich in mercy that he quite literally left his heavenly home, his eternal dwelling, squeezed himself to be born in the squalor of a manger. If you want to know what that looks like, go to a pigsty. Lived an entire life without sin, was killed by the very people he came for. Second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God himself did that. And by dying and being killed, he was killed as a substitute for you. Because he knew you would be eternally homeless. He knew the only hope you have is in these earthly dwellings, which by the way can be crushed very quickly. He knew that when you die, what you faced was eternal homelessness. So he died instead took the punishment for your sin so that you wouldn't suffer the homelessness of hell, rose three days later, and now offers you an eternal home that if you repent and believe in him, you will be welcomed by your friends, chiefly himself, into an eternal dwelling called heaven. And like the rest of us who have been saved by this gracious God, you too can use your money to make friends who will welcome you into the eternal dwelling. Do you see? Or maybe you're a believer, but you live a little bit like a Pharisee. You, you, you use your money, we use our money as a trust, as the thing that will help me stand and sustain me, as the thing that will get me sorted. And Jesus is going, that's such a waste. <laughs> that's such a waste. Why don't you use your money to make eternal friends, that return 
will never run dry. It will never go bad. That is real shrewdness. That is the sons of light acting like they are supposed to. So a couple of questions. Are our budgets centered around God's priorities for our money individually? As a family, are our family's budgets centered around God's priorities for the family? Now, I'm not saying that you take 80% of your wealth and give it to missions. But I am saying, do we give what is right or we give what is left? Does God get first priority, even in our finances? That as a church, I pray we'd continue being a church that uses our money to make friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. As stewards, we'll have to give an account for how we used our wit and our wealth. That we would live today in light of that day when we are entering those eternal dwellings. And I'm, remind, I'm reminded of a story. I was talking to Luis Perfetti last week at Alwada. He was telling me about his dad. His dad was basically a lifelong missionary. And toward the end of his life, when he was unwell and it was clear that his body is checking out, what he was spending most of his time doing is making sure that places that needed the gospel, that needed Bibles, that needed clothes, that places where missionaries needed help and the mission needed to happen, that they were getting what they needed. 88 years old, on your deathbed, two days before his deathbed, he's still telling his wife, now make sure those things get there. On the day he's dying, that's what he's thinking about. You know what that is? Someone who gets this. Someone who gets that the wealth is meant to be used for that. Doesn't mean he didn't have any needs. But it came under the priority of God's needs. And I pray we would be a church that does that. That uses wealth to fund church-based, gospel-centered missions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, we recognize that my heart and our hearts are idol factories. That, Lord, it does not come easy and does not come naturally to give money that we believe is ours, that we believe is hard-earned money. But, oh, Lord, would you break the stony parts of our hearts where our money is concerned. That we may see money as little more than a tool to glorify you with the priorities you've already given us in Scripture, with our natural families, with our spiritual families, and with the mission of God. Oh Lord, grant that we as a church would someday see many friends who say, thank you, ECC. I'm here because of you, because of how you spent your money. And would you grant that in whatever small way we can be a part of that, you'd make us eternally grateful. Would you provide more for us, but bigger than that, Lord, would you provide us with a heart of generosity that wants to see the lost found. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.